All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another hashtag exchange essay chat. My name is Yusra Iftikhar, and I'm your 2019-2020 APTA Student Assembly Director of Communications and your host for tonight. Go ahead and shout out your name, your year, and where you're from in the comment section. And remember, there is a Twitter conversation happening as well. And you can use the hashtag ExchangeSA and follow us at APTA students for that. Before, before I introduce our guests and jump into tonight's topic, I have a few short announcements. Although in-person National Advocacy Dinners, or NIDs, have been canceled, there are several virtual NIDs happening around the country and one nationwide NID for all of us to learn together on May 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern, where we'll have some very special guests. For more information, you can contact your Advocacy Project Committee Chair, Erin Sales, at aptasa.advocacy at gmail.com. The ABT Student Assembly has formed a team to run in a virtual 5K, 5K where donations will benefit the CDC Foundation Emergency Response to Combat COVID-19. To join the students team, click on the link in the comments section below. APTA also has a page dedicated to information about COVID-19 and how it impacts our profession at apta.org coronavirus, in case you want to check that out. And applications to be on the Student Assembly Board of Directors are opening soon. That includes positions like President, Vice President, Secretary, Director of Membership, Director of SPTA Relations, SPT Delegate, members of the Nominating Committee, and my role, Director of Communications. If you're interested or have any questions, reach out to the Nominating Committee via the contact information being posted in the comments section now. And finally, as always, the, blog, the Pulse blog is looking for contributors, and if you'd like to submit an idea or a blog post draft to the Pulse blog, please do so at Pulse at APTA.org. All right, I am very excited to be joined by two guests who are no strangers to chatting with APTA about finances and financial literacy, having been featured on an APTA podcast together before. We have Kevin Stoner and Alice, Alex Mayslack. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, before we get into the questions that I have for you, would you both mind introducing yourselves further, letting us know where you're from, how you got your start in working with people regarding their finances, and anything else that you'd like our viewers to know? Kevin, we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Alex. Hey, uh, my name's Kevin Soner. I'm the Vice President of Operations for iGrad. Um, iGrad is the company that provides the Enrich platform that is available to APTA members. Um, the iGrad company started uh, back in 2009, founded by a group of former financial aid professionals. Uh, myself uh, and some of our uh, coworkers all started back uh, in the uh, 2000 to 2008 range, uh, working for some of the lenders that were involved in um, providing the financial aid um, and funding the federal student loan program. Um, Things changed with government regulations around uh, 2008, and that's when our CEO um, started working on the process um, that eventually became the founding of the iGrad platform um, for colleges. And then eventually we branched out and started offering financial education resources via the Enrich platform for the after college group. Um, my, my time between um, the financial aid world and the um, financial wellness world with iGrad uh, was spent in student housing. Um, so I've, even in the times that I have been outside of the financial um, range of working with college students, um, it's always been um, somehow connected to the, the, the college world. And uh, working in student housing, as I'm sure you all know, can be a little bit of an adventure. Um, and uh, that was a nice, a nice change of pace, but uh, happy to be back on the, uh, the financial side of things while still being able to support students and uh, alumni. Fantastic. Well, we're happy to have you. Um, and I'm Alex Maslack. I am the Director of Business Development at Laurel Road. I have uh, actually spent my entire career working in the student loan industry. Um, prior to working at Laurel Road, I worked for a student loan advisory business um, that focused on healthcare professionals. So first helping folks manage their student loan debt, pursue federal loan forgiveness and income-driven repayments. Um, and then, you know, as they matriculated down their career, you know, helping them manage their wealth and look at insurance options. Um, and one of our partners there was actually Laurel Road. So we referred our clients who were good fits for student loan refinancing to Laurel Road. Um, and I, uh, about five and a half years ago now, uh, actually made the move from uh, that advisory business over to Laurel Road. And I've been um, really heading up our partnerships, um, primarily with medical associations and, and employers um, for that time. So 
have, have given countless webinars. Uh, I, I know I have a number for the APTA um, and helped develop our, our student loan assessment tool as well. So this is, uh, like I said, kind of been my, my entire career in this world. Yeah, absolutely. Now, for those of us who are really unfamiliar with Laurel Road and Enrich, unfortunately, would you all mind going back through real quick and just explaining what is Enrich and what is Laurel Road and what does it offer us as students? Absolutely. Um, so the Enrich platform, it's a online platform available 24-7. Um, it's designed on a responsive design platform, so you can access it as a traditional website from your laptop or desktop, um, but it also adjusts and optimized for whatever device size you're on, so your smartphone, your tablet, etc. Um, and it's a collection of financial education resources um, that provide you with the opportunity to have an unbiased resource. We don't sell products. A lot of the, there's a lot of different sites you can go on uh, where you may be getting information that's steering you towards a credit card offer or a loan offer or something of that nature where you, you might want right. to second guess um, what they're talking about. Um, so our platform was designed as we receive our funding from the organization that's sponsoring giving you access. So in this case, the APTA, um, they give, they pay for our services to be available to the APTA members so that they can trust and the, the members can trust that they have access to an unbiased resource of information on financial topics. Um, and we cover everything from the beginnings of what is a bank account um, and what is what are the basic concepts of a budget all the way through to the complex layers of those topics and then retirement, um, estate planning um, for, for kind of the, the end of the financial journey and everything in the middle. Um, we provide everything from articles, videos, infographics to really um, kind of complex and interactive tools, um, courses that kind of guide you through topics uh, with uh, action plans that are delivered to you at the end of how you can um, kind of apply that to your future. Um, one of our best tools that I would recommend everybody um, gets engaged with if they haven't already is we have a proprietary um, money personality behavioral analysis tool. Um, a lot of you may be familiar with something uh, like the Myers-Briggs um, tests where you kind of learn a little bit about yourself. Um, this is the financial version of that. Um, it helps you learn the underlying personality traits that are driving your financial decision making. And then we have a, a collection of content within the platform um, to help you know how, how to apply that to your financial uh, behaviors in a responsible manner. And that tool is really cool. So I, I ended up like answering all the questions to then get my like personality and, uh, assessment. And the cool thing is it gives you this like little booklet, right? And you can like print it out and it gives you all the different um, things that you should be focused on. So admittedly, I haven't read through it yet and I, I should, um, but it's, it's a really great tool that I would definitely recommend students checking out. And I love that it is so user-friendly, like you mentioned, um, and it assumes nothing about sort of your financial status and your, like you said, the basis of knowledge. Um, so for me, it was a very comfortable tool for me to use. Uh, so I definitely appreciate that. All right. How about Laurel Road? Yeah, so Laurel Road um, was one of the first lenders in the country to start offering student loan refinancing. Um, and so basic idea here is everybody uh, who's in school taking federal loans, which, you know, about 90% of people do, um, you all get the same rate uh, for that given year. And the rates change from year to year, but every single graduate student in the country um, gets that exact same rate. Most people, the bulk of their loans in graduate school are going to be grad plus federal loans. Um, those typically are in the six and a half to seven and a half percent range, uh, depending on what year you're in school. Um, and so you, that, that's kind of the, the debt profile you're graduating with. And, you know, as a physical therapist could be well into the six figure range at six and a half, seven and a half percent, um, which is rather high, uh, you know, mm -hmm. within the context of this interest rate environment. And so, what Laurel Road started doing um, six, seven years ago was offering people the opportunity to refinance that debt. Um, so just like you would refinance a home mortgage, you can refinance your student loan. So it, it basically entails us uh, paying off your existing loan and giving you a new loan at a lower interest rate. Um, nice benefit relative to refinancing a mortgage is there's no fees, no costs whatsoever. So it's not like you have to okay. pay for an appraisal or there's closing costs. Um, we mm -hmm. literally pay off the exact amount you owe and we give you a new loan for that exact same amount as well. Um, and so to date, we've 
refinanced over $6 billion in loans. We're one of the top two or three biggest lenders in the country. Um, mm -hmm. This is far and away our um, uh, most prominent product. We, we put a lot of resources behind it. And um, on average, you know, a borrower who owes 150 grand, um, you know, stands to save 15 to $20,000 typically, um, you know, depending on how much exactly you owe and how long you're going to take to pay it off. Um, but pretty significant savings opportunity for borrowers who take advantage of it. Absolutely. Do you by chance have numbers on what the average debt tends to be for either DPT or PTA students? Um, off the top of my head, in, in the 150 range, um, okay. huge, huge range, though, of people who've gone to mm -hmm. a public or private um, school, as well as those who've gone to a public or private undergraduate program. Um, those tend to be, you know, big factors in, in what you owe upon graduation. Sure, absolutely. So I've been in my role for about five months now, and I've interviewed someone every month, and I get nervous before every interview, but I've never been anxious about the topic itself. So as a more general question, how do we as students put aside that worry and that fear enough to then approach our finances and our debt in a way that will serve us best, meaning how do we not avoid it? Well, um, from my side, I would say that the biggest thing is just is just jumping in, um, knowing that the the best thing to do is do your research and on any topic that that gives you anxiety is you're going to overcome that by being informed, um, and right. you have you have access to lots of different tools and resources, um, and that's really it's all about taking that first step and going down that path of getting the information that you need. It sounds cliche, but one of the old things they used to tell us when we were young is information is power. Um, and like, it, it really is true. Uh, the, the more you know, um, the better you're going to feel about any given topic. Um, and couldn't be more true with finances, especially with the kind of taboo um, that there is in, the, in this country um, with talking about finances. Um, and that's one of our goals is to try and help people get over that um, by the fact that you have access to resources. Um, and one important thing to, to note with the enriched resource is that APTM, APTA members have access to a toll-free number to call in and talk. Um, so you don't even really need to know um, exactly what your problem is or what information you're looking for, because that's one of the biggest hurdles sometimes is what am I looking for? Um, you can just call up and talk to one of our coaches um, and let them know, I'm really anxious about my finances. I don't even know where to begin and they'll help you figure it out. Yeah, and I, I, would, um, I would just add uh, that I think the student loan marketplace is um, less painful than people assume, right? Like there's, there's a lot of opportunity to reduce the cost of your debt. Um, if you do just put in the, the time and, and research, like Kevin said, um, you know, all of the outcomes aren't bad. And, and in fact, especially for healthcare professionals, there's a lot of opportunity, you know, to either have your debt forgiven or reduce your interest. Um, so it's, it's well worth the time to, you know, do a bit of Googling and figure out your optimal repayment approach. Yeah. I have a lot of follow-up questions based on what you both just said. Um, so, Kevin, when you spoke uh, with Jimmy McKay on his podcast, PT Pintcast, you talked about our sort of general hesitation to ask certain questions and just an overall kind of lack of resources and basic knowledge about our finances. The issue sometimes is we don't know what we don't know. So what are some of the things that you wish students thought to ask about more to really elevate our financial literacy? Well, I think the, the most important thing that people should ask um, is, or they should ask themselves is well, like, where do I want to be? Where do I see myself? Like, what are the financial goals and uh, kind of hurdles and challenges and paths that I, that I want to go down? Um, and then mm -hmm. what do I need to know about those paths? Um, so the, that's the, the first and most important question is, is that internal question of asking yourself, where do I want to go? So for example, in, in, in your all's field, do I want to work for somebody or do I want to eventually be an entrepreneur where I'm kind of going down my own path and opening up my own practice? If I have goals of opening up my own practice, I have completely different decisions all along the way. There's many different steps along the way that I need to be thinking about um, where somebody that really doesn't have that drive to 
go the entrepreneurial route and they really want to work for an organization. And then there's also the mm-hmm. questions of, do I want to work in um, kind of nonprofit type of areas to try and get loan forgiveness, which is going to tie into some of the things you need to know about when you're talking about refinance um, or do I not want to go that route? Do I want to go for um, the highest income possible? Different people have different motivations and different drives, and you need to know that path that you're going down. Um, and then that's going to lead you to the next set of questions. So in talking about that path we're going to go down, how heavily do you recommend people base their, um, like how much, how many loans they take out, how, what their repayment plan is based on what setting they want to end up in? And should, should we be, uh, taking jobs in settings purely because they might pay more and so it would be easier for us to pay back or should we go for jobs that might pay a little bit less but are the jobs that we truly want or is there some sort of like it depends balance in there there's definitely an it depends balance type of thing um you, you hear the phrase work-life balance um and that's an important thing mm-hmm. and, and this is more of the question that um you again you have to ask yourself uh, internally why did you go into the field? Um, why did you choose right. that? Why did you choose that career path? And that's really what's going to kind of lead you into it the most. Um, at a certain level, um, you need to think about things in terms of dollars and cents um, for like what's the mm-hmm. ROI on your education. And this this is every field. Um, so if you're planning on going and getting that degree to go into a path that's going to have lower earnings because that that's the path that you're looking to go down. Um, you need to understand what's the financial implications of that. Now, the good thing is a lot of that, um, a lot of that lower earning op- op potential is, has, a, has a likelihood or a potential to be tied to public service loan forgiveness. So there is a potential where that path can have a positive impact on the forgiveness of some of your loans. Um, if you're not going down that path where you're eligible for the loan forgiveness program, and there's a, there's a lot of questions uh, about what's going to happen with that program in the future with pending legislation, there's also income-driven repayment. And this is something that's very important for everybody to understand is you do have income-based payment options with federal student loans, um, and therefore, it, regardless of what your income is, um, you can have a quote unquote affordable um, based on um, based on uh, the calculations um, that they use. In some cases, I've, I've got people that we've coached where they go and they evaluate their payments and with income based, they're not paying anything. Um, so they can, they're considered on time payments, even though they're not paying a penny. Um, and mm-hmm. at, after you get down the path, it's a much longer path than um, public service loan forgiveness. But after you get down the path of 20 to 25 years, depending on the plan, there is still a forgiveness aspect to uh, income-based payment. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, but I, I would, to your primary question is you really, I, I personally don't believe in um, taking a, taking a job or going down a career path, for that's outside of what I want to accomplish. Um, that's right, really what right. that's really my, from a kind of a off the record or a non, non-financial basis. Um, it's, that's my, my opinion is go for the job that's going to be rewarding and fulfilling to you. And that's going to end up being better for you in the long run, um, than simply going for something for the finances. Um, between the resources that we can provide and the coaching we can provide and the type of um, services that Alex's group can provide. If you go down the path, that's going to bring you joy. We can help you with managing the financial side of things so that it's a positive path. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't want to make any assumptions on this podcast. I want to go back to what we might consider like the basics. So um, you've, you've both mentioned uh, student loan refinancing. You've mentioned public service um, loan forgiveness. So Alex, could you tell us a little bit about what even is student loan refinancing? Sure. Um, so like I was saying, it's it's same concept as refinancing a home mortgage. Um, you know, everybody gets the same rate while you're in school. Um, after you've graduated, uh, and, and like any other loan, frankly, uh, other than federal student loans, your interest rate is a factor of, or a product of your credit worthiness. So what, what is the likelihood that you're gonna pay this debt back? Um, and the reality is most healthcare professionals have, are very credit worthy. You, know, you have very low unemployment rates, very low default rates on debt, and therefore excellent bet to pay the loan back. 
And so, you know, things that we look at in determining what rate to offer you, you know, once you've graduated and, and started practicing are uh, things like your FICO score, um, your total monthly debt obligations, and your, your total monthly income. And so we take those factors, um, you know, run them through our, our pricing calculator and outcomes your interest rates. And so uh, we were acquired by KeyBank about a year ago. KeyBank's the 13th largest bank in the country. And so we have a really big balance sheet now to lend off of. Um, and so since they've acquired us, our average interest rate is in the four and a half percent range. Um, and so when you compare that to the average federal loan rate that you're you know, coming out of school with, there's a pretty big spread there. If you said your sure. weighted average student loan portfolio upon graduation was you know, six and a half or 7%, and you could knock that down to four and a half or 5%, well, a 2% difference on your interest rate over the next 10 uh, or even more years. I mean, we have 15 and 20 year terms as well. Um, you know, that 2% difference is, is really what generates the, the five figure savings amounts that, that people see over the life of their loan. Mm -hmm. So, um, could you walk us through, so you've, you've talked a little bit about the pros of refinancing. Are there any cons to refinancing that we should know about? As with all financial decisions, there there are both pros and cons. So uh, we are very forthright about this and, you know, we want to make sure everybody's making their best decision in terms of their repayment. And so we offer a number of tools and resources to borrowers, as does Kevin, to, to help you make that optimal decision, you know, but uh, the real trade-off is you're giving up the ability to, you know, use those federal repayment options, which tend to be more flexible and, um, you know, most well-suited to people with, you know, higher debt, more modest income. So once you refinance, you can't use public service loan forgiveness. You can't um, use income-driven repayment programs. Uh, the forbearance allotment on the loan is one year, so we still allow you to not make payments for up to 12 months. Federal loans, it's actually three years. You, you could not make payments. Um, okay. In the current climate, another really meaningful difference is um, as part of the CARES Act, um, there is a six-month interest waiver that runs until September 30th on all federal loans. So if you have a federal loan, um, not only do you not have to make payments, you're not making payments on it for the next six months. That, that was the default they put everybody into. Um, you're also not being charged interest until September 30th. So you're effectively for, you know, the coming five or six months here, your interest rate on federal loans is zero. Um, obviously, once that, you know, interest waiver ends, you're going to go right back to the six and a half or seven percent rate. Um, mm -hmm. But for the time being, you've, you've got that zero uh, percent interest waiver uh, until September 30th. So those are really the primary things you're giving up. I mean, generally, you know, if you took that interest waiver out of the equation, refinancing is for people who, you know, very financially stable, comfortable making full monthly payments, you know, real objective is to pay the loan back as economically as possible with as little interest as possible. Mm -hmm. Federal programs are for those who, you know, work at a nonprofit and want to pursue forgiveness or, you know, somebody who, you know, really high debt burden, more modest salary, they need to use the income driven options um, for some cash flow and liquidity relief. So um, generally, those are the buckets of people who are looking at the, the two, you know, opposing strategies. But, you know, obviously, things are complicated in a good way right now by that uh, six month interest waiver. Yeah, well, and I appreciate you to go explaining in terms of like, this is the type of person that would benefit from refinancing. This is a person that would benefit uh, otherwise. Um, let's see. So we've got a couple of questions coming in live here. One is, what are the typical interest rates when refinancing with Laurel Road and what factors influence that rate? I think you've gone into it a little bit, but if you don't mind. Yeah, I can reiterate, sure. Um, so average interest rate is four and a half uh, fixed. These are, you know, quoting fixed rates. Our lowest fixed rate is three and a half. That's available in the five-year term. And so um, your rate offers uh, generally, in almost all cases, are going to go up the longer the term loan you want. So your seven-year rate offer is going to be lower than your 15 or 20-year rate offer. Um, so what you're trying to do is find a good balance between low rate, you know, on those shorter-term loans and a manageable monthly payment. I mean, obviously the monthly payment on a seven-year loan is going to be a lot higher than a 15. Right. So 
we'll give you, you know, once you apply, you don't need to know which term you want going into it, but you'll be made rate okay. offers on all the terms that you qualify for. And so you can see, you know, here's the rate I get on a seven versus a 10 versus a 15. And here's my monthly mm -hmm. payment at each one of those, you know, do any of these work for me? You know, if, if so, great, continue on in the process. If they don't, um, you know, you can walk away. There's no commitment whatsoever. It's also no um, impact on your credit score to get those preliminary rates. So we just do a soft That was going to be my next question. Yeah, I figured that follow-up was Perfect. coming. So <laughs> there is uh, no impact on your credit to get the preliminary rate offer. It's very easy, um, you know, five-minute process, and, and you can figure out where you stand. Yeah, well, great. And can you refinance loans? Um, that refinancing process, does that come entirely after graduation? Or can any of that be done when you're still a student? It can be done in your final year of school once you've signed a contract with a dated start date. That's the earliest, very earliest you could refinance. Um, and if you were okay. to do it then, um, you could defer making payments until you started uh, in that, that job. Um, so you could theoretically- So I don't have to have an income at the time that I'm refinancing? Correct. You could- Okay. You know, if, this, if you were a final year student and this was four months ago and you just signed your job contract, you could refi then um, and defer making payments until you started working. All right, perfect. Yes. Um, Kevin, could you tell us a little bit about public service loan forgiveness? That's come up quite a few times and you've mentioned who may or may not be eligible, but just in case people aren't familiar. Yeah, the basics of public uh, service loan forgiveness are um, if you are working in a qualifying role um, and the qualifying role is the something that not, we can't really get into. It's pretty complex. Um, that's something that you would definitely want to go through the Department of Education resources on. Um, a generalization would be while well, working for a 503B nonprofit is a, is a safe bet. That type of organization um, is what you would need to be working in. Um, there's a couple of outliers to that. Um, but essentially, if you're working in a, a, a low-income nonprofit area, um, essentially, um, earning far less than your education could potentially earn you in the benefit of the general public. That's the, the idea behind public, public service. Um, the result mm -hmm. of that is if you make 10 years of qualifying um, on-time payments, then you can have the remaining portion of, the, of, the, of your balance forgiven. And that's the most important thing that I always point out whenever anybody is talking about public service loan forgiveness is if you are eligible, which you're going to want to do that research before you go down that path of spending 10 years in a low income um, um, field, you have to make sure that you have money left on your loan to be forgiven. Uh, it's one of the biggest mistakes right. that people make um, is if you go on a standard repayment plan, a standard repayment plan is 10 years of, pay of payments. So there are, there are people that when they just recently um, started um, reaching that 10 year point, started filing for um, getting uh, the forgiveness found out that they didn't have any money left on their loans. They thought they were going to get reimbursed for everything that they already paid. Um, and that's not how it okay. works. It's so you would want to take advantage of something like an income-based um, payment option that would allow you to be paying the least amount off on your loans while you're making all of the qualifying payments and working in the qualifying field after that 10 years goes back, um, goes past and you submit the, the, the proper um, paperwork process, then you could have that uh, remaining portion forgiven. So that's the, the general idea behind it. Um, but again, it is mm -hmm. a, a very, a very complex situation. And it's something that you want to make sure that you're going directly through the Department of Education resources, as far as ensuring that the field and the employer that you're that you're in is um, qualifying and that you're meeting all eligible, uh, all eligibility requirements over the course of that uh, time frame. Um, there were there's some statistics that um, recently came out that people were alarmed where um, it was somewhere in the range of 80 to 90 percent of applicants to have their loans forgiven in the first year that applications were open um, for um, were denied and so that that was a big PR um, type of, of negative um, press for the program. Um, but one of the things sure. that came out is that there were a lot of people that had not met the requirements. So, so people were five years into repayment and they started filling out their paperwork. And so of course they're going right. to be denied because they hadn't done 10 years of payment. So um, don't let the initial like kind of news that's out there of everybody gets denied um, dissuade you from going down that path. If it's a path that you choose to go down, 
do your research with the Department of Education about the eligible um, options and pay attention to any of the upcoming legislation. Um, if it does pass, that might change the program. Right. So doing your homework early on could quite literally pay off <laughs> 10 years down the road. Absolutely. Um, so getting a little bit more into repayment plans, um, Alex, you were a guest on the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast on which you noted the plan that you stick to is the right plan. Are there any wrong ways you've seen students go about loan repayment and how do we actually choose a plan that we're ultimately gonna stick to? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I, I, I believe that I said that, but I, I wouldn't go as far as to say the plan that you pick is the one you have to stick to. Um, I think, you know, especially on the federal side, the, the programs are fluid, like, you know, revised pay as you earn um, it was a new income driven repayment option, which is an incredible fit for a lot of people. And that was just introduced, you know, four years ago. And so theoretically, mm -hmm. you could have been using one of the other options up until that point, the new program gets released, it's in your best interest to, to transition. Um, you know, I, I think the thing people should try and stay away from, which we unfortunately still see, you know, somewhat regularly is just putting your loans into forbearance for a sustained period of time, you know, right out of school. You don't feel like dealing with your loans. You can forbear your federal loans for three years. We see a lot of people do that, um, you know, which results in the interest really racking up um, and capitalizing, mm -hmm. compounding. So uh, that's one I would say you'd want to stay away from, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, especially on the federal side, legislative changes occur, um, you know, new programs get rolled out. So I would, whatever you choose in year one or two out of school, I, I would continuously reevaluate that every you know, year or so, certainly as your financial situation changes, but also as um, the repayment marketplace uh, overall changes as well. All right, perfect. Let's see. Um, so getting into talking about um, investing, so what are some realistic ways that students can invest safely while paying off significant student loans? Well, investing safely, that's a, uh, that, that, that's <laughs> always, a, always a little bit of a catch 22, especially when we're talking about the current environment. Um, if you, right. if you, if you've read anything um, that's come out um, in with, the, with the recent uh, dip in the stock market as a result of the, of the pandemic, um, there is one general rule um, that applies um, to no matter who you talk to, um, and that is the longer that you're invested, the safer that it is. Um, you'll hear a term okay. called dollar cost averaging um, that in some of the different articles that you might read right now. And the idea there is sometimes the market's going to be high, sometimes the market's going to be low. And if you stick to a pattern of every month I'm putting $10 in or every month I'm putting $100 in or whatever that number is and you're consistently putting money in, if you stay the course over a long period of time, things are going to average out. Sometimes you're going to be buying high, sometimes you're going to be buying low, sometimes you're going to be buying average, um, but you're going to be adding to your investment portfolio over time and that's going to build and it's going to grow and that's going to be a positive for you. And that's probably the most important thing. Um, right now there's a huge benefit for um, your generation that's just getting into investing um, is there's so many apps that are out there that allow you mm -hmm. to get into the process in a fun, easy to approach way with very little money. Um, there's one called Acorns, which is literally like mm -hmm. where it's almost like pennies that, 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 that you're, that you're putting yeah. in. Um, I, um, I've, I've used a couple of them and they have no fees um, that like it's gotten into such a competitive right. marketplace that there's no fees for the basic transactions. Um, so if you want to just start putting in five bucks a week direct deposited from your check into one of these apps, and then you can get those in and, and start investing and you can buy partial stocks. Um, so that's all, something else that's um, changed from the past use. Uh, if you wanted to get a share of Apple when it's at $300 a share, um, you'd have to, have $300. Now you can buy $5 worth of Apple through certain apps. Um, so really just get started and know that the value of money over time is the key with investing. Don't try to become some kind of genius reading all the, all the articles and when to buy of this particular stock and when buy the buy low sell high uh, strategy. Um, it's really about just be invested for a long period of time and let it sit, let it grow. 
I had no idea. That makes a lot of sense. And my favorite thing about the Acorns app um, is that you can set it up to where any purchase that you make, any you can like round up to the dollar amount and all of that money, like you end up investing. And so I ended up looking at my app and I was so excited at how much money I'd saved. And I showed my dad and said, look, I have so much money saved. And he was like, that means you've been spending way too much because <laughs> all those dollar amounts are getting rounded up to my account. Uh, so be careful with that, I'd say. <laughs> um, so speaking about apps, um, we talked about apps that might be good for investing. Um, people also have questions about what apps are just good for like budgeting, for improving financial literacy. Is there any other app that you recommend or that you personally use? No, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, um, budgeting and, and kind of financial tools. Um, I'm a little biased. Um, so we, we don't have an app um, because of the fact that our platform is so comprehensive. Um, the mm -hmm. platform itself is built on a responsive design. Um, so it functions better than an app would um, in the fact that it adapts to your exact screen size as opposed to being restricted to um, one app for the app store um, and one app for the, the Google store or whatnot um, and having it right. be um, restricted by the requirements of those um, those code bases. Um, so we can get really mm -hmm. creative with our tools um, and have them be um, designed to be optimized for for different screen sizes. So like everybody knows that not, at these days you you might have a phone that's uh, that's bigger than the smallest iPad um, and you might have the yeah. biggest the biggest right. iPad might have a screen that's bigger than your computer. Um, so it's not yeah. just it's not just about the, the device, it's about the screen size these days. And that's where our responsive design platform comes into play. Um, one thing I will I, I will be um, frank on is our our platform is around learning about the processes. So like our budgeting tool is going to help you build your budget and understand your budget. And it's got sliders so you can you can kind of model out different scenarios of, well, let me see if I got a raise and was making an extra $500, how does that, it does, how does that work? But when you want to track your budget and you want to be looking at stuff in a kind of an ongoing basis, there's tons of tools out there. Um, everybody's probably familiar with Mint. Um, there's a lot of different things mm -hmm. that are similar to Mint. Um, and if you're comfortable from a security, uh, a data security level, um, you basically have your, you provide your passwords for your various different accounts. The systems aggregate all of your accounts on an ongoing basis for you automatically, and they can do really cool things with that. Um, it can bucket your money um, automatically and tell you how much you're spending in different categories. Um, you can set up alerts with a lot of these apps where um, you set mm -hmm. a limit and say, I only want to spend $500 on entertainment um, in a three month period um, during the semester of school. And when when, when you hit the $400 mark in that category, it's going to warn you, hey, you only have $100 left um, in this budget period. So you can do really creative right. th things with some of those aggregation apps. Um, one of the other things um, to point out with those apps is um, we use the phrase garbage in, garbage out. Um, and it's really important to understand that you need to maintain what's going in there um, accurately or else you're going to get bad information out. So for example, if, if you sign up, if you sign up for one of these apps, you plug in all of your accounts and then two months later, you get, get a new account. You open up another credit card. If you don't mm -hmm. add that credit card to the app that's tracking your budget, you now have an area of your spending that you're not paying attention to. So that's the most important thing uh, when, you're, when you're looking at all of those aggregation apps is no matter how good their technology is and how good the, the user experience is, if you don't manage what it's looking at, you can get some bad information being spit back out at you. Right. No, I'm absolutely guilty of that as well. Or I'll pretend like a late night, like McDonald's run didn't happen, or I'll adjust my budget a little bit month to month. So uh, that's, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. By buying something and, in cash so you don't see it in your reports. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, and so, and, and, okay. So I want to ask about that. Like, do you feel like, is that something you've ever recommended? I don't know how like low level budgeting that is, but I've heard of uh, approaches where people will like keep cash in envelopes like for each month. And so you can like only spend that much. And once you're out, you're out. And so a way to kind of control your spending. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it, it's a, it's the, the low tech version of one of those apps um, where um, okay. it's envelope budgeting. Um, so you or cash budgeting where you take out the money um, from your account as it comes in or like from your paycheck, you literally cash your paycheck, you stuff it into envelopes. This is mm -hmm. the amount that I can spend in these different areas. It's just a different method. Um, and you made the comment earlier about um, the, the idea of repayment plans being the right repayment 
the right plan for you is the one you stick to. Mm-hmm. People say it all the time about the best diet is the diet you stick to. Um, mm-hmm. Same concept mm-hmm. with bud- budget. Like there's a hundred different ways to come up with a budget. Um, the one that you actually fo- implement and follow, um, that's the best budget for you as an individual. So some people really need to have that in front of you um, kind of cash situation. Um, you see the money leaving your hands um, as opposed to clicking a bunch of stuff and there's just a ones and zeros flying around and all of a sudden your bank account's right. empty. Um, so there's just, it's just different mindsets. Um, we also recommend depending on the person um, that we're coaching um, a doing it kind of like a, uh, if you've ever done a, uh, a food log, um, one of the best things for mm-hmm. dieting for dieting is before you, before you start um, trying to change um, drastically, just write down, just keep a, a, a kind of a mini notebook with you and you write right. down everything you eat. And the fact that you're paying that much attention, you're like, wow, I'm on my fourth bag of chips today. Like just, right. just, just, just being aware of it is going to help you get into a better habit. And it's the same concept with spending your money. Um, if you have to write down every time you go to Starbucks and, and, and get a overpriced coffee, um, every time that you go pop into a 7-Eleven and buy a couple candy bars and what all these different things that individually your brain says, oh, it's just a dollar here. It's a couple bucks here. But if you write all those mm-hmm. things down, it really sinks in. Yep. Yep. So, um, so I, I wanted to ask about that. So um, when, let me think how to phrase this. Well, I'll come back to it. So um, in terms of investing though, we do have another question and it's a little bit of a different take on it um, where it's somebody asked how students should invest their time. And I suppose um, it's going to vary quite a bit person to person, but and a lot of people have like side hustles um, and some of them are like PT specific, some are not, but is that something that you recommend? Would you say it just depends on the person and their sort of bandwidth to be able to balance school and their job versus these side hustles? Or is there any sort of, um, is there any advice that you like typically give? Yeah, it's, it, it's going to be one of those things um, kind of in that work-life balance world again. Um, it, it has to do with how much free time you have. Um, so, mm-hmm. and, and I like when somebody said, but like budgeting your time, because when we talk about time management, I talk to people how your time is essentially a budget. Um, you have a finite number mm-hmm. of, of days and hours and minutes, just like um, you have a finite amount of money. Now, the difference is you can't create more time. You can go out and make more money. Um, so that's the, the, the difference that kind of impacts your strategy when you're budgeting your time. So what I like to have people do is similar to a budget, you bust out a calendar and you calendar out every minute of every day with what you're doing. And you want to see where do you actually have free time? If I take on this side hustle, how does that cut into my study time? Um, Do I have after work work? Um, So like you might be physically at work, but then you have to go home and you have to do research or you have to do reports or other things that you might have to um, do that impact that primary job that you have. Um, So you need to have all these things written down. Don't discount. I have to have 20 minutes to eat. Um, I have to, um, I have a dog and, and I 15 minutes to walk the dog in the morning, uh, 15 minutes to walk the dog at different points during the day and literally putting out all of the things that are guaranteed time consumers for you in a calendar. Mm -hmm. And now you see what's the impact. Do I really have time to take on a second job or what is the impact going to be? Um, In my, in my household, I get six hours of sleep. I'm good. My partner, she mm-hmm. gets she gets six hours of sleep, and I need to tread lightly for a couple of days. Um, she, she, <laughs> she she's better off with nine to ten. So um, if you just look at that from a personal a personality trait, I have four hours a day available to me that she doesn't, um, because mm-hmm. I, I get up at I get up at six in the morning and I'm immediately working, and I would have additional time to do things where that's just not an option for her. So just an example sure. of where it's, where it becomes personal. Yeah. So budgeting your time in the same way that you might budget your money. So and just understanding the impact of if you add something, does it force you to take something else away? What is the impact? Right. Absolutely. So going back to this idea of budgeting, then what I was tempted to ask you before was what is, and either of you can answer this question, but 
sort of what's the number one mistake, mistake you see students making when it comes to creating their own budget, but do you feel like it is that like sticking to the budget and then just being conscious enough to know what you're even spending on? Or is there anything beyond that that we might be missing? My, my, my one answer would be just not being honest with yourself when you're creating the budget mm -hmm. uh, with your expenses. It's the, it's the number one thing. Um, obviously you might make a mistake and you might forget about something, but there mm -hmm. pe people will start to fill out their budget and they might feel ashamed about the true number that they should be writing into sure. a certain field. And they're like, Oh, I, I, I don't really spend a hundred dollars a week on, on, on this or that, whatever the thing is, I'm going to put 50. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're trying to make themselves feel better about the number, which creates an inaccurate situation. So mm -hmm. be, uh, be, be brutally honest. And that's where sometimes doing a daily diary for the first 30 days to get a true representation of what your monthly spending habits are, um, is a good, is mm -hmm. a good strategy. Right. So in talking about budgeting, uh, and continuing to think about the different ways in which we may each prioritize, uh, what we'd like to spend on, um, Alex, you and I are both very invested in the same college basketball rivalry. Um, yeah. you cheer for Duke and I cheer for um, the better team. And so if we were going to be, I'm just, kidding, I'm just kidding, but if a little bit, but if we were talking about, for example, buying tickets to the games, right? Um, that's not cheap, but say that's a priority for me. Um, and there are other things that might be deemed like non-essentials that may end up being essentials in our lives, like continuing education that's not covered by our jobs, like APTA membership, anything that's not, uh, you know, sort of paying back these loans, like student loans, um, like car loans, et cetera. Do you have any additional advice for prioritizing those things and being able to address that as well without feeling like I have to wait 10 years down the road before I get to actually engage in all of these other things that are pricey, um, but pretty core to the life that I live? Yeah, I think it's important for people to recognize that there's not one size fits all uh, budget or, you know, lifestyle for everybody. I mean, certainly, you know, some people prioritize certain things over others and, and that's not universally the case. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, somebody who's, who's passionate about uh, Duke or UNC basketball, you know, maybe, maybe that's really, really important to them that they make it to one game a year and, you know, mm -hmm. there, there may be others who, you know, want to take one, you know, international trip a year and, and that's, that's their priority, um, you know, or, or others who, you know, want to play golf once a week. And, and, you know, I think everyone should realize that uh, they, they need to listen to their inner self and, and what's truly important to them. I mean, obviously everything can't be a priority, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, picking and choosing the things that truly matter to you uh, is is your own prerogative and, and, you know, something you should feel empowered to do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for putting up with um, me <laughs> talking against my own PT program. So hopefully no one from Duke sees this. <laughs> um, so we've got a question here that asks how much of each paycheck should go towards debt versus investing early on in our careers? Well, it's a tough question when you, when you say it in it, as a whole of just debt, because um, it's really going to depend. Mm -hmm. Again, there's no there, there's no one size fits all. Um, if you've been uh, very good in your money management skills to this point, and your only debt is your student loan, um, you're in a completely different situation um, than somebody who um, has a car payment and they have credit card debt, and they've so they've got a a, a big debt profile um, that they're going to be addressing. Mm -hmm. um, it's a completely different situation. So. Um, Percentages wise, um, it's always a big challenge. You want to make sure that you're able, before you, before you're looking at investing, um, you want to be, make sure that you're able to make the minimum payments on everything. So you want to make sure you're meeting all obligations. Okay. Uh, that's the, the first and foremost is you have to make sure that you're not um, missing any of your obligations on any of your debt. But in terms of mm -hmm. being aggressive to pay down debt, that's where we usually get the question is from a debt management strategy. Um, there's two different layers. The question you just asked of debt versus or pay down debt versus save, whether it's 
normal savings investments, what have you. Um, and then the other question of if I'm going to be attacking my debt, which debt do I attack? Um, so mm-hmm. on one of the one of the previous sessions that we did with APTA, uh, we talked about the the debt avalanche versus the debt snowball. Um, and those are just different strategies okay. of how to pay down your debt when you're paying down multiple um, channels of debt. Um, one of which mm-hmm. is the kind of mathematical strategy, which is you attack the stuff with the highest interest rate first with any extra money mm-hmm. that you have, um, because that's going to save you money in the long run. Um, there's a psychological strategy, uh, which is more about whichever, whatever debt has the lowest balance. So let's say you have three credit cards in your student loan and one of your credit cards has a $500 balance and the other ones are all higher balance. Then you would put your Mm -hmm. extra money towards that $500 credit card so that you can pay it off because you get that emotional kind of um, feedback of, Oh, I I eliminated one of my things. I checked something off the list. Right. Um, So there's different strategies on paying down the debt. um, Just like there's the different, different mindsets and strategies on the investing aspect. Um, the mathematical point of view is you look at what is the rate of return on the investment versus the, the rate of uh, kind of accumulation of the debt. So if you have to put it in simple, simple terms, if you have um, 7% interest rate, Alex mentioned that like you'd probably be falling in that route um, on your federal student loans. Let's say you haven't refinanced. um, You've got a 7% interest rate on your student loans. Well, you're going to be pretty hard pressed in short term um, to, get a greater return on just putting some money into um, an Acorns account or something of that nature. Um, Long term over extended periods of time, um, you might be close, but but you're you're not going to be in this no brainer, like, oh, I definitely need to invest because um, I'm going to earn 20% or something like that. Just there's, it's nothing's going to give you that return with one exception. If your employer is offering a match to you contributing to a retirement plan, um, that's something that you need to factor in because let's just say, for example, an employer is offering to match whatever you put in dollar for dollar, Mm -hmm. that's a hundred percent return. So when you're comparing a hundred percent return on your investment versus a 7% interest rate, then most experts would tell you, you should put in at least enough to get that match from your employer because you're doubling your money. Okay. So um, that's one thing to keep in mind um, when you have that opportunity, just personal investments. um, It it, it can be a little bit of a, a little bit of a challenge, um, but it's also the, the idea of psychological. Um, Some people need to know that they're saving for the future. So put a little bit Mm -hmm. away. Um, If you want to go strictly mathematical, you got to look at the numbers and whoever has the, the bigger, the bigger interest rate impact or, or lesser interest rate impact on debt um, is going to win. Um, if they, right. if for, for everybody that's, that's in attendance, if you, if they want to call in and kind of review their current debt profile with exact balances and exact numbers, this is the type of type of personal coaching um, that our, um, our certified counselors do uh, where they can help you break down and review your exact debt profile um, and come up with a strategy that helps you um, achieve whatever goal you're looking for. Yeah, that sounds really helpful. And so we will be sure to um, find that phone number for everybody and post it into the comment section so that everybody can get started there. We've got a question about um, credit cards. And this can be a question for either or both of you, but just in general, talking a little bit about how to use credit cards to your advantage um, and being mindful of making sure that that doesn't also become like a financial detriment to us. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, from my perspective, and, and Kevin, I'm sure you, you have some more uh, context and color to add here, but um, I think credit cards are a really useful tool if used responsibly. I mean, at least speaking mm-hmm. to their impact on your credit score, um, opening a credit card while you're in school and, and using it responsibly. And, you know, I personally would recommend you know, to the extent that you're able to use it and pay off the balance every month, just as you would if it were a debit card, like that, that's how you want to approach um, the, the credit card. So a couple benefits okay. uh, versus just using a debit card, you know, number one, most credit cards have points associated with them. So if you were to take one of the cards that, you know, for instance, gives you 2% cash back on, on every dollar mm-hmm. you spend, it's as though you've gotten a 2% discount on every single thing you've purchased with that credit card, um, which is obviously right. a really nice benefit. Um, mm-hmm. 
an ancillary benefit or probably not even ancillary, like meaningful benefit of opening that card while in school is, is it helps improve your, your credit profile. So you have um, another piece of debt that you're paying consistently every month. Um, that helps, uh, you know, from the standpoint of making payments on time, that's one of the major factors of calculating your FICO score, as well as uh, having a longstanding account. Um, the credit bureaus want to see accounts that have been open for a, a long period of time. That'll help improve your score, okay. as well as um, mix of credit. So uh, to really optimize your score, credit bureaus want to see different types of loans. So a student loan, a credit card, an auto loan, a mortgage, um, the greater the mix you have, um, the, the better your credit score will be generally. So, um, you know, from my perspective, when used responsibly, credit cards can be a great financial tool. All right. Yeah, and um, just one, one quick thing to add to that. Um, sure. Those are all excellent, excellent points. Um, but one thing that um, a lot of people overlook is uh, by using a debit card, um, if you think about the world that we live in with identity theft, um, if you're primarily living off of your debit card, um, if somebody gets your debit card and they make charges, that's real money disappearing from your account um, that you then mm -hmm. have to go through a um, kind of a process with the bank to try and uh, get those funds back. With a credit card, it's they're, they're, they're charging money that you would be paying down the road. Um, so that's my personal preference is to have my debit card um, only there for situations where I might want to take out cash um, or we've got a gas station around us that doesn't take credit cards. They only take debit cards, but I keep a, a low amount mm -hmm. in there to minimize risk. Um, and then that way um, I've, I've had situations where I've gotten a text or a phone call from Chase where my credit card is and they say, hey, did you just buy a computer in Ohio? I'm like, I live in California. <laughs> um, so they know that, that that probably wasn't me. Um, and I'm like, I text back no. And they're like, okay, we'll, we'll just delete this charge and we'll deal with it. Um, if that was on yeah. my debit, if that was on my debit card, the money would be gone. Um, and I, would, I wouldn't have access to that money until whatever process um, transpired. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> it's not fun. Multiple times, actually, in college. So yeah, definitely not fun. And that's not a a like a, a benefit of having a credit card that I like ever even crossed my mind. And so that uh, makes a lot of sense. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, we've got like a minute left. So I'll go ahead and go into my last question for both of you, which is, um, I'm really curious, if you could go back and give your student self one piece of financial advice, what would you say? Hmm. Well, mine's a little different because you guys have a, have some protections um, that, but would could, would apply to you right after school. Um, when I was in school, they you could sign up for credit cards on campus to get a free T-shirt, um, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I fell into the trap of um, just apply for a bunch of different things, um, and so that's one thing that I learned the hard way. Um, young um, is that you the amount of inquiries that you get on your credit. Um, can look bad. So opening up, yeah. uh, opening up a, a credit card at every store at the mall to get the like 10% discount for like all your different purchases. Yeah. And that, now you've got, right. now you got 50 credit cards and all this, all this, all this uh, line of debt. Um, that's the thing that I think I would go back is um, don't over, don't overdo um, applying for credit, even if it's stuff that you don't intend to use. You just wanted that 20% discount that day and you're going to pay it off. Um, right. You can dig yourself a hole on your credit report. Sure. So, so I was on the complete opposite end of the spectrum and I didn't have a credit card until I was out of college. And I remember like going to apply for my first apartment in Boston and uh -huh. you know, whatever they, they run your credit and they came back and they're like, you have no credit. You've never had a loan. You've never had any, anything. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I wish, you know, I had, at some point in, in college, taking out a credit card just so that I could have started to build that credit profile uh, early on. It, it definitely helps you, you know, as you go to take other loans, um, you know, I got a car loan shortly thereafter, um, you, you get better rates uh, if you have that established credit profile. So it's it's worth your time uh, to find that middle ground and, and opening, you know, one or two credit cards and using them responsibly. Uh, a lot of, lot of benefit there. 
Yeah, I love that. Well, y'all just brought it home full circle. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> um, so I appreciate both perspectives on on the credit cards and um, sort of the advice that you give your student selves. Um, we are out of time. So I just want to thank you both so much for um, all that information, all the help. I really appreciate it. And I know everyone watching does too. Um, it doesn't have to be your personal information. It can be for either Enrich or Laurel Road, but if students wanted to reach out for more information, where can they find y'all? Um, so our team's available, super easy, support at enrich.org. Um, that opens up a ticket in our support system. Um, and you, if you come onto the um, Enrich site, that's for the APTA, um, which is enrich.apta.org. Um, there's mm -hmm. a chat a chat bubble um, that's in the bottom right corner of almost every page. Um, so if you want to have more mm -hmm. like real time, um, then you can engage in a web chat. Um, you can also go to the contact us section um, of the um, enrich.apta.org site and find the phone number um, where you can call in and speak to an advisor or, or coach, counselor. Sorry. We, we have a number of channels. You can reach us as well. Our, our website um, for APTA members is laurelroad.com slash APTA. There's a live chat functionality on there you can use. You can also email us directly at studentloans at laurelroad.com. Perfect. Well, thank you both again. I'm really, really grateful. Um, and thank you to everyone who took time to tune in tonight. Um, our next exchange chat is on Sunday, May 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. So be sure to follow the APTA student social media channels to find out who the guest is going to be and the topic. Um, Real quick, as a member of Class of 2020, I wanted to say a quick congratulations to everyone who has graduated or will graduate in the coming months. Um, I'm very proud of all of us, and I just want to say I wish you all well during this time. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great night.